Tanse, Okamau Apista Nitsigasan, Nehia Nipsigo Pak, Muskochi, Sotinia Treaty 6. Hey everybody, Elijah Buffalo here, coming at you from France. Today's Thanksgiving, which they don't celebrate here, so not going to have any turkey today. And it's also Indigenous Peoples Day. I've been in France now for a couple months, and uh, you know, doing a lot of biking, eating good food. No peanut butter, though. That's uh, one thing I miss a lot. And I've been hanging out with family, studying, doing some art, and trying to get back into race shape. So these conversations here uh, I had with my dad back in the summertime. And I've been sitting on them for a little while now, but uh, had time to reflect upon them and uh, ready to, to put them out. These are conversations that uh, we've had in the past as well. You know, growing up, and he would share these stories with my brothers and sisters and I. And we didn't get to talk about everything that I wanted to before I had to travel here to France, but we were still able to record and allow him to share a lot of his journey. And he shared a lot of this too through the places like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And his testimony can be found in the Sports and Recreation section of the Survivor's Speak Report. My dad is a survivor of Indian residential school, and he shares parts of his journey in these talks. And in our current climate, where settler society is only just learning of the graves and the deaths that we always learned about and heard about from survivors like my dad, it, some of this can be pretty challenging for listeners to, to process. My dad always had a way of making us laugh when he told these stories, even as small kids. I grew up hearing these stories over and over again, and we'd request these stories on long road trips or camping at powwows in Saskatchewan or out, out in the mountains. And in this conversation, he shares a specific story about burying bodies. And the way that he tells it has a bit of humor to it. And I sort of laugh. And in reflecting on this, I felt pretty bad, but, uh, you know, I didn't mean any disrespect by it. And in reflection, I think that the way in which he tells it, and, you know, he introduces sort of this, this humorous aspect of, of something so terrible that uh, it, it shows the humanity in the experiences that uh, that they went through and in which humor probably helped them survive. So, you know, we focus a lot on sports here and he shares how sports was used at these schools as tools of assimilation and he and others through the TRC talk about this. And this is an area of research that I'm currently pursuing and how we can utilize the assimilative history of Western sports into our healing and health and wellness. For many survivors, sports was what helped them get through residential school. And I urge you to, to go read those reports in the TRC to get the information about, uh, about how sports became a big part of our, our lives, Western sports, that is, and how they're used as major supports to cope with colonialism which I find in my own life. Within the TRC's calls to action, there are several dedicated to sports and reconciliation, and these are 87 to 91. 
And I'd like to do an episode on these and, you know, really look into how I think they can be implemented and how they are sort of being implemented. But I don't think that we can leave our health and wellness and inclusion in sports to the state unless Canada can leverage these calls to action to find me a spot on the Olympic team for 2024. Just kidding. All right. So with that, uh, we'll get into the conversations with my dad. And just a note, some of the audio is a bit hit and miss as we tried recording this in a restaurant to start and then again back out in Moscow Cheese on a pretty windy day. So I think it's not too bad. Anyway, here we go. All right. Yeah, so if you want to just start from uh, just introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh, my name is uh, Melvin Harrison Buffalo. My uh, Green name is Xeno, uh, which means uh, elder or uh, old man in Cree. I was uh, called that uh, right when I was uh, knee high to a duck. So, so now, my grandfather gave me that name, and, and uh, I accompanied him because he was the chief on my reserve to all the uh, council meetings. Sometimes we had him in. Uh, Sort of in a in a field or in a park or someplace where all all the people get together and under a tent in the summertime and, and in some building uh, later on when they uh, were uh, older. But uh, I remember uh, going to uh, a council meeting by the river. You know, we're talking about uh, uh, this big snake that uh, somebody had seen in, in the river. And it was a huge uh, anaconda, anaconda type of snake that come out from the from the river. Wow! I think it was like a, it was like the movie. Uh, it was that big of a snake. It was like a Loch Ness type of thing. It, the elder said it came from inside inside the river. Yeah. In a hole, came out to the surface, came onto the land, and then went back into that hole and disappeared back. In into the uh, underwater system and maybe went back to BC or something in Loch Ness mm-hmm. or further on up to the coast to uh, um, do what they had to do uh, Yeah, well I think survive, I've heard right? of uh, like big snakes in uh, like uh, Lakota territory like that. Yeah, there's, there's stories like that and you know the Cree they, they, they went from all the way from uh, northern uh, Canada like in northern Alberta, mm-hmm. all the way down to um, the Gulf of Mexico in, in the early days. They went, migrated north, north south of the Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And one of the examples of their presence there was they named that big river Mississippi, which means big river in Cree. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a Cree word for uh, big, big river or, or big waters. The other one was that they, they ran into this, uh, the Crees ran into this chief in the um, eastern eastern part of the country who was very difficult and uh, hard to get along with. So they called him uh, Watakamso. But then when they in history shortened his name to Tecumso, Chief Tecumso, he's in the, the oh, books. Yeah. And, uh, but it's a Cree word 
meaning that he's kind of a difficult person to get along with. So. Yeah. Anyway, I was getting off the track here. And I was talking about my uh, the meeting that. Oh yeah. So experience. what happened with the, the meeting at <laughs> the what? The meeting with the oh yeah, the meeting with the the council. Yeah, it was really. Uh, I was sitting um, with my grandfather while he was talking to the to the councilors, and we were sitting around in a circle. And the elders, the older people, said, "Well, this is really good what we're trying to do, but." Why don't we ask that uh, your um, your grandson there, or your son, to, to to say what he thinks about this, uh, what he would do? And they, they all looked at me and asked me what what I would do. Eh? And I, you know, the five or five year old kid, I I said, well, we we need to eat more and uh, we need to feed our people. And uh, they said, well. There you go. There you have it. He, he wants to. He wants to uh, feed and uh, provide employment for the people that we need for the future. I mean, uh, the elders said, you know, there's nothing you can do about the past, but sure you can do something about the future. And uh, I always remember that saying because I think they borrowed it from somebody, maybe one of the uh, ministers. The uh, Catholic uh, priests that come around our area, or else the uh, United Church people that, that came and preached to us all the time. And were they talking in Cree? They were talking in Cree, yes. And, uh, it was always in Cree. You see, you, if you spoke English at those meetings, the elders would say, "What? Speak Cree? Because uh, if you want to, if you want to be uh, uh, English or uh, white." Be white, but don't don't be uh, don't try and be white here in this meeting. We're we're Indians and we gotta speak Indian. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, you got chastised if you spoke your own language. I mean, you spoke uh, English or any other language. Yeah, I think that we could probably just start from the the top again, mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So you could. Yeah, I remember <clears throat> my grandfather, uh, my uncles taking, taking me on uh, hunting trips up to the mountains, you know, west of, west up here, uh, in the uh, Rocky Mountain area, which are traditional hunting grounds uh, up to the mountains, and hunting for moose, seal, uh, elk, deer. And uh, watching my uncle and them uh, line up a moose. Uh, to me, it was like a vast distance, but with their rifles and that, they they uh, managed to get the the moose whenever they saw it. And we'd come home with a bunch of meat uh, to to feed not only our family but the others on the reserve that we needed to have our or other family and friends. Uh, one thing that struck me when we went on the hunting trips was when we had to skin the uh, the animal right there on the spot, take out all the guts, you know, cut the stomach open, and take out all the guts out of it. And, and uh, I always uh, liked uh, 
eating the uh, the uh, raw, uh, you know, people say heart, they eat the heart, but I, I, I always like the kidney. Mm. And uh, a little bit of, clean it off with a bit of water and uh, put some salt in it. And I used to like, like eating bits of it. I guess, you know, like when you're that young, you really can't, you know, it's a, something that you, you just assume that everybody does, eh? Mm-hmm. You know, it's an acquired taste, I imagine. <clears throat> but there was supposed to be a ceremonial thing, too. Yeah. I believe that uh, by doing that, you're lifting up the spirit of the animal to the animal can, uh, afterlife. Plus, we also prayed over the uh, the moose uh, or us, uh for him to pro- provide for us, our family, and uh, with his uh, with his meat to you know to keep us uh, not starving in the winter times. Was it usually the male? Yep. Moose. Yep. And also, we used to have to have about two or three people helping because there were moose. Well, over a ton, eh? you have to load them onto the truck, and <laughs> mm-hmm. it was quite a chore. So you had to have a number of people with you to, to get the thing onto the vehicle. <clears throat> but we used to, uh, uh, what we did there is we, we'd bring a, uh, an axe and a saw and cut up the, uh, the moose so it'd be easier to carry you know, into the vehicle and also carry back home, cover it up with a with canvas or a tarp. What, so time, was, of, uh, what time of year? I was, uh, I remember hunting during snow, hunting late fall, early spring, and in the summer. So it was basically year-round. Mm. It's just that when we were short of food, when we needed to feed our families, that's when we, uh, we'd, we'd leave the uh, like four, three or four in the morning to get to, you know, mountains. It'd take about three or four hours to drive all the way to, you know, to the, the foothills and past to, to get to our hunting areas. And, you know, from here, I'm imagining past Rocky Mountain House and even further to get to get to the uh, hunting hunting grounds, mm-hmm. the Treaty 6 area. <clears throat> so it was a... Very, like I never got to shot, shoot any uh, any guns because they were, they told me it was too dangerous for a little kid to be firing a gun like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd probably miss and waste a bullet or something like that, you know. As I grew older, though, like, I did manage to uh, shoot some uh, with a twenty two rifle at uh, some deer. And... Uh, uh, my shot wasn't that good, so I never, I never did bag a deer, uh, even though I tried. <laughs> yeah. And so you were born right here? Yeah, right not here. Too far not from too far from here, about three miles from here. Two or three miles from here, my grandfather's place. Oh, yeah, and that's like where Leighton... Where uh, Leighton and uh, Nash live. Yeah. Yeah. And we had cows, we had horses, we had pigs, we had chickens. Uh, about everything, except maybe sheep or uh, uh, other you know, things like that. Um, we had we had uh, 
the cows for uh, we use for uh, milking. Also, we if we needed if we couldn't get any uh, deer or moose or elk, we usually uh, take a slaughter uh, a cow uh, for food. Mm. <clears throat> and the chickens is for the eggs. And uh, I used to remember uh, drinking the milk from the uh, the cows straight from the you know, straight from the pail that they were using to uh, collect the, the milk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Non unpasteurized, probably. Yeah. yeah. It was. It, it tasted pretty good. Yeah. And the, the eggs with the chicken. And uh, remember uh, having to uh, catch the chickens for eating. You know, it was kind of gross, but we have to uh, chop chop their heads off to, <laughs> to uh, get them and then as kids we did, we thought that was a, a lot of fun because the chickens are running around with their heads cut off and blood spurting all over the place. <laughs> it's kind of a little sadistic I guess but <laughs> that was the only way that uh, we uh, were taught <clears throat> at the time. This is back in the 50s, so early 50s. Mm. And so when did your dad get this this piece of land here? Uh, I think by the time I was born, uh, he uh, was working for a farmer out uh, out west, out east as a hired man, eh? and through that he um, he was able to uh, purchase a house from that farmer, and they moved that house all the way over to uh, where my dad's house uh, down the road here. And he bought that, bought that house, and moved it all the way over here, paid for the move, and we had an instant house. And, and uh, it was from his earnings as a, as a farmhand. And it was a nice house. It was, uh, you know, two stories high, you know, big kitchen, living room. It had an attached garage. And had an upstairs with bedrooms upstairs. In, inside washroom, it's pretty nice. <clears throat> so he uh, started uh, farming this this land. Uh, him and my other uncle, they had uh, farm equipment, plows and uh, combines and stuff like that. And uh, the birds are pretty loud around here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we were saying that the other day. He said, oh my God, those, were, those birds are loud. Yeah. Trying to tell us something or something. And we uh, planted hay to make bales for the cattle, for my grandfather's cattle, and hay for the horses and uh, things like that. <clears throat> and we had tractors and we had wagons to load the uh, the hay down. And we planted gardens, a garden here, a big garden for the potatoes and that, vegetables. It was really sort of a self-run operation with all the animals and also the uh, uh, planting gardens. My dad was really, really proud of the fact that he never went for uh, for welfare. At the time, he called it relief. That was uh, the, the name for it back in the days. Eh? Mm-hmm. But uh, he claimed he never had a, ever had to go for relief or welfare or social income support, as you call it now. 
and uh, uh. he said I can make whatever I have to make to uh, to put you know bread on the table. He worked out in the oil fields driving a big truck, you know, delivering uh, gas to the uh, uh. big machines that they had there. Hmm. We would come along, I was really, really young at the time, we'd come along with our mom and my other sister uh, to, to deliver uh, that, that fuel to the, um, to the well camp you know, out in Drayton Valley. He drove a school bus and uh, uh, he also uh, ran a, a sort of a part-time Taxi operation. He hired him out as a taxi driver to earn extra money. Mm. <clears throat> anyway, we're going back to my grandfather. My grandmother was a very strict, authoritarian person. That she would get very angry at you if you didn't know how, if you didn't speak Cree. Like she, she thought it was really. Uh, uh, a crime if you even said one word in English. Eh? Mm. You even take the broom after you <laughs> and hit you over the head with a <laughs> with a stick or something. So we used to always run away from her when we were trying to figure out what the word was <laughs> she was asking for. One time I forgot uh, my uh, manners and I was telling her that. Uh, a car just drove up, and some uh, white people were coming. Uh, white ladies were out, uh, out there, and she she said "nehiwe," which means uh, you know you're speaking Cree. Eh? Yeah. She was very angry that he spoke in English. And uh, what it was, it was the, the the nurses from the from the agency were here to uh, uh, check up on us kids, and they wanted to. Uh, Talked to some adult that was in the building, yeah? and my grandmother uh, um, told them that she would, wasn't able to speak English, and uh, she wanted to know what they wanted. And she to told me, uh, my interpreter here, I was the interpreter, will, will uh, interpret for me, and so I had to interpret everything she said. And uh, what happened was the. Uh, we had to get needles uh, and vaccination, vaccinations uh, from the nurses. Eh? Mm -hmm. We weren't too pleased as kids to get those <laughs> things, but uh, we had to get them. And seriously. Did you tell, try telling her that it was for something else? She, uh, she said, we just away, which means that you're, you're going to get a needle. Eh? And uh, she wasn't too happy with that. She said, well, who ordered this? Who asked you? Who told you you could come and give my kids needles? And I told it, uh, the nurses that day, and they said, uh, nobody told us, but we are uh, uh, asked by the government to give you, the kids, uh, these polio vaccinations and measles and uh, mumps and everything to keep to keep you guys from dying or to, to, to live. And she reluctantly agreed to have them to do that, eh? Mm -hmm. I still have a mark on my shoulder from a, one of the vaccines and it created a big scar. 
<clears throat> smallpox? I think it was. So see, after they left, uh, all of us kids were crying around because we had needles and everything. <laughs> so we were, next time uh, a blue car showed up with white ladies, we always hid. There's no way we'll get water. I know I'm going to get a needle. <laughs> we took off into the trees trying to hide. <laughs> My grandmother said, well, you know, for your penalty for speaking English, I'm going to ask you to, she said this in Cree, eh? I'm going to get you to go into the into the bushes there and get me a, a, a stick so I can uh, beat you with it. Because you spoke English to me. So I went out there and cut a stick. I came back and she said, what do you want me to do, kill you? <laughs> Get me a smaller stick. And so I went out there and I got a little twig. Eh? Said, what are you making fun of me? This is too small. Get another stick. I was in tears already. Eh? <laughs> Going looking for a stick. Finally, I got the one the right size after it served her first trip. Eh? And she said, there, next time you speak English, this is a stick I'm going to use. <laughs> I thought, oh my God. I was lucky in that one. <laughs> but she was that she was that strict, uh, you know, using your language in, mm -hmm. in uh, the English language, uh, which she thought was a sin to speak English. Uh. Mm. Can you say it in Cree, what she was had said? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If you want to be white, you can be white and you can speak the white man's language. But if you want to be uh, Indian, you have to speak Indian. Because that's where it's going to take you further on down the road in your life if you know how to speak uh, your language. That's what I just said in interpreting uh, that in Cree. <coughs> From English, the uh, when I went to residential school, they they um, they tried to prevent me from uh, speaking my language, and I would always, you know, uh, I knew how to speak both English and uh, and Cree. As a matter of fact, all the other my fellow students. The ones I went to school with at the time, they would say, "This is our interpreter." You know, I was the interpreter because I would, I was able to uh, speak on their behalf for, uh, yeah, whatever they were, because they couldn't express themselves in English. Mm -hmm. They knew I could speak English. They knew I knew I could speak Cree. So they'd call me. here, he knows how to speak Cree. I don't mean but he knows how to speak English. So this is he's he's our he's our interpreter. <laughs> so I was eight years old being an interpreter for twelve to fifteen year olds in school. Eh? <laughs> and plus I was really short, but uh, that didn't seem to didn't seem to mind that. But as a matter of fact, in high school, in grade nine or is it grade grade ten? I was four foot eleven. <laughs> yeah. 
And in grade 10, I think I grew an, an, an inch to five feet, but still, that's pretty short. Yeah. And then by the time I left high school, I was five foot six. And then when I went to university, I grew a couple more inches to, uh, you know, and finally up to my uh, five foot ten when I left uh, university. I was saying, geez, I should have been five foot ten when I was in high school, and I wouldn't have been so picked on. Yeah. Residential school. <clears throat> so were there other short people in the family? Like, uh, or like, because we were, we were talking about, like, was that maybe something to do with nutrition? Maybe I think it had to do with uh, what I, uh, uh, when I was in, uh, in residential. Uh, the food wasn't that great. And you were constantly uh, picked on for not eating your food, eh? Mm -hmm. uh, I always gave my food to somebody else because I, I just couldn't eat that food. And, and, you know, literally half starving when I was uh, going through uh, residential school. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I was the, uh, I think it's, the, um, there was a weight division between 99 and 105 wrestling. I was the uh, city and almost the provincial champion in that weight group, even though the people I was fighting were probably grade sevens and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. I was a city champion and all that stuff because yeah. I was fighting little people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I ran. Uh, I, the guy, uh, when I went for uh, my Canadian uh, Western championships in Edmonton one time I um, I lost in it was a, like a three round battle and we had to last three three rounds against the uh, the, the person at uh, three minute rounds and I lost uh, I won one but I lost the other two and the guy that won ended up, ended up uh, he went all the way to the Canadian Nationals and was a representative in uh, in the Olympics in Grecian Greco Roman wrestling. Wow. So I guess I, you know, if I could have beat him, I could have uh, went to that that same route. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like after that that experience, I kind of lost interest in uh, in wrestling. Yeah. Even though I was pretty good for basically uh, from grade seven to grade twelve in wrestling. Uh, I didn't lose very much <clears throat> in that weight division. Was there a big culture of sports here in uh, Muskogee's? There was mainly in uh, hockey, baseball, softball, and uh, mainly those were the three main groups, and I uh, kind of was too small to to play in those sports, like in hockey or uh, in baseball. So I kind of avoided those those sports, even though I, I skated uh, ever since I was knee-high to a duck. Uh, you know, my first present my dad gave me was a uh, hockey skates puck and a, and a hockey, uh, um, hockey stick. And I played out on the, on the roads all the time, even though we didn't have ice, we played on the road, because mm -hmm. the roads were so icy. <laughs> yeah. It was like a built-in, uh, ready-made uh, hockey rink. Yeah. 
My dad would say, don't play on the, on the roads because you're going to make your skates dull. <laughs> uh, we'd listen maybe for about a, uh, 10 minutes and we'd back, back on the road. Uh, but then we had to walk maybe about two miles down the road so we could get to the nearest slough, shovel off a piece of the uh, snow, and that's where we played till it got really dark. And we had to go home and, and uh, you know, fr half frozen, but uh, you know, I sure had a uh, bang up time playing hockey with uh, with each other. <clears throat> in high school, I uh, lettered in uh, sports. Like I got my letter mm -hmm. because I was involved in seven sports, and I got a uh, points towards my. You know, you needed so many points to get your letter. Right? My letter was JP, the name of the school. Yeah. And a lot of the athletes, if they get their letter, they put it on top of their jacket, sport jacket, and it it uh, signified uh, that they, you had. Uh, you know, gained quite a few points. And my my sports at that time were I uh, played soccer, badminton, uh, I was in uh, wrestling, I was in uh, uh, hockey, golf, <laughs> that was a sport. And I was also in track and field and I was running uh, basically like, uh, uh, I think it was two mile, because a mile was, it was too fast for me. I wasn't able to get under five. I think I one time I made it to four, four minutes and uh, 45 seconds for a mile. But people were doing it in four, mm -hmm. 450 and 424 by that time in high school, and I couldn't do it. But in the eight, in the um, two mile, I managed to get uh, to, uh, it was 854. And that was good enough to win the, in those days, the uh, city championship. And I went to the provincials and came in uh, second. And then there was also this uh, five five mile, uh, sort of like a the cross country. I was involved in cross country, so I was a, I got points for my letter for uh, for being involved in cross country racing, which. Uh, my my strategy at the time was uh, when a gun sounded, I would take off right away. Like sprint. Right, yeah, right at the front of the pack, just running. And uh, like I used to run from here to uh, uh, Obima, which is five miles. Yeah. And then run all the way back, ten miles. When I was a kid, you know, just run there in the morning and come running back in the afternoon, in the evening. So I knew how to, you know, I was running. Constantly, and uh, when I was uh, with these cross-country people, they didn't know that history, so they would, you know, chase after me, and I'd keep running ahead of them. And uh, I won my uh, my first cross-country like that. Nobody could pass me, because if they tried to pass me, we'd be sprinting, you know, and they'd run out of breath, and I'd keep <laughs> on running. You know. And uh, I won a few races that way. I just couldn't believe that the skinny kid, short little kid on top of it, was beating all these uh, 18 year olds that are really, <laughs> you know, big, strong, and muscular and all that. Mm. And uh, I was just like a little 
uh, I was like from Ke Kenya. <laughs> Kenya, yeah. Yeah, short little guy, uh, road running everybody. <laughs> yeah. So. And was there uh, racism in in the sports? Yeah. In those yeah. days. Oh yeah. It was I mean, people it was yelling everywhere. at me for uh, winning, you know, yelling insults at me all the time from the bleachers. I don't know what the, what was their problem. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, just like the parents. And... Yeah. In soccer, I didn't even know how to play soccer, but I, I joined soccer because uh, I wanted to get away. I thought that would be the easiest way to get uh, to get uh, points. And I was out in a, you know, one of the defenders uh, all the time. Because I couldn't run fast enough to be a forward, uh, and you had to have sprint. You used to be able to be a good sprinter to be in uh, front lines. And uh, I got quite a few yellow cards because I used to always mow down the people that came with the with the uh, with the uh, soccer ball. The referee this kid is too rough. Yeah. I heard that was how Jessica used to play, mm -hmm. and the parents would complain that she was too, too aggressive on the field. Yeah. And they'd say, "Can you get your kid to stop running into people?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I remember, I used, used to get you uh, for every goal that you made, you made a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, Connie, uh, he gave me heck, and I think your mom gave me heck for uh, You shouldn't pay him to, uh, to be scoring goals like that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it was like a dollar for an assist. Yeah. Five dollars for a goal. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it was a good little racket there for... Until <laughs> yeah, the, I know, until all the other kids are saying, Eli, could you get some points for us? <laughs> we want some ice cream. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that was when uh, in... Uh, uh, when in residential school, we, were, we we played hockey constantly at the, uh, we made the rink, like I was involved in making the rink, putting uh, water on the, uh, on, on the, after we packed the snow down. And also, if, as, a, as a bonus, we would be allowed to, to get as much uh, ice time as we wanted, you know, in lieu of games, eh? if they have a game, mm -hmm. then we couldn't play uh, play hockey but any other time like after after school or weekends we'd be on uh, on the ice rink and in those days we had um, we had hockey in high school it was like a high school sport mm. and uh, I was in a mind you sat on the benches but I was on a high school team in, uh, in my school for one year the one year that they had it and also uh, there was a, there was a hockey rink right by the school, with a stadium seating type of thing, and there was also a swimming pool. Like I was involved in swimming as well, even though today I, could, I couldn't swim, where to save my life. <laughs> yes, I was teaching uh, swimming when I was in uh, grade twelve. You have to be be a coach type of thing to be in uh, phys ed thirty, so you yeah. could teach the grade tens. And uh, this grade ten little guy. Uh, jumped in the water and uh, I guess he didn't know how to swim. I thought he did. He didn't. So I had to jump in to save his life. Well, he almost dragged me down to the bottom and you know, <laughs> I drowned myself. You know. 
so after that, I kind of got leery of, uh, of swimming. I imagine I could swim if I had to really, if I really had to. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that was one other, I forgot to mention, that was one other uh, sport that I got a, uh, a, a point sport. At, at the school, you know, they probably have pictures of me on each or one of these teams, eh? Yeah. And uh, what type of championship we got and everything like that. And you were doing pretty good in school, too? And I was doing good in school. I was uh, in grade 12. Just uh, I'll go backwards from that after. But in grade 12, they call these, uh, these um, test departmentals. Imagine if still have those uh, where you, it's run by the, the entire province has to take this one exam, eh? Mm-hmm. And each, each uh, exam was like all morning, or it could be all day. You, know, you take and you write it, and it's sent to the uh, processing uh, provincially. And it's not just the teachers or themselves that give you the test, it's the... Uh, Education board or whatever authority that's uh, in place. To make a long story short, I got a uh, a high mark for English 30, or for English, and uh, I got a scholarship from uh, Indian Affairs, and I also got a scholarship from uh, Alberta Hotel Association. And these uh, scholarships are gra- are granted to people that that uh, receive high marks for the, for the course itself. And for the private sector, uh, it's for the, uh, the one of the highest marks in uh, English. And the other one I got marks for was uh, French, I mean not French, social studies. So I got two, two scholarships. So to me, even though I never did see the actual grade, it was, um, I think in uh, probably in the 90s or the high 90s, but I received A's in those two courses, and then B's, and he needed uh, at least a B average to get to get into university. Mm. And I was short courses for my university entrance, so I had to retake some grade 10 and grade 11 courses to make up my matriculation. So uh, the three years that I did go to uh, to high school, I had to add two more because I had to catch up on grade 10 and 11 courses and uh, uh, it took me five years to get through high school. But by that time I had my full matriculation, I could go to university. And uh, by that time I was 19 when I got out of high school. <clears throat> I was 16 when I graduated from grade 12. And then I had to add those two years when I was 18. Mm. Uh, I didn't mind it. I went to uh, summer school and I finished uh, like a grade, grade 10, math 10 math. And then in summer school I did uh, grade 11. And then the uh, fall session I did the uh, math 30. And then in spring I did math 31 trigonometry and that to the end of June. So I had my math credits. And 
the same way with uh, French, summer school, fall session. It was a tough, a tough go. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but <laughs> uh, it was, it was horrible. <clears throat> but uh, I managed to uh, get through it, and I uh, managed to get passing grades. Uh, I did have a problem with Math 31. Um, I failed it. I had to take it again in summer school. I failed it again. Then I went through uh, in uh, fall. Passed it third time. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So were you able to come back to Hobima during that time at all? Yeah, I came back in the summertime. Um, but then towards uh, my later period, I, I stayed directly right through uh, um, the whole school year in, uh, in Edmonton. And basically just uh, board and roomed uh, at, at um, the government uh, board and room situation from grade uh, during the school year. And in the summertime, I, I bunked in with my friends that had, had apartments and stuff like that. Mm. I think we got kicked out every month because we were having parties. And, and uh we got banned from this one company because we had we had been kicked out so many times from their outfit they didn't want to rent to us anymore. <laughs> Too many parties. We have an opening party, um, you know, opening uh, night at our uh, at our apartment. Yeah. And we get kicked out the night that same night. We got thirty <laughs> days to move. <laughs> Find another apartment and have the same thing. I don't know. Didn't learn. <laughs> yeah. Back then. But we uh, became city kids, urban kids, yeah. learned how to survive the streets of Edmonton, and got into a lot of fights and a lot of uh, sneaking into uh, bars and situations like that, uh, going to have dances and parties, and a lot of parties. Yeah back in those days, but we still managed to get through with our, our studies and our schools. Mm -hmm. and, just a, uh, and we had, we faced a lot of uh, racism too in the, back in the, you know, going through, uh, going through school. When I went to high school, my high school was uh, 2,500 students, grade 10, 11. And I'm, I'm coming from a school that maybe had 20 or 30 people. Yeah. And to go to a school that has 2,500 students, oh, a bit overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty big. It was one of the biggest schools at that time as well, Composite High School. The school itself, like there's a one building that's six stories high, and that was it, you know. And the other the other school, part of the school is, uh, you know, two, two or three stories high. And then attached over on that side was uh, the shop, which had all the trades and everything like that. And then over here, attached to here, is the uh, the swimming pool, Olympic-sized swimming pool. And then attached to that is the hockey rink. And then back there is a football field. You know, there was a you know full-out foot, football campus. field and a Pretty soccer field. You know, it's almost like a university back yeah. then. Oh my God.
Is it still there? It's still there. Yeah, it's, got, it's by uh, West Edmonton Mall. It's called uh, Jasper Place Composite High School. Uh, they farmed out the uh, the uh, the hockey part of it. It's called my community group runs it, and it's called Jasper Place Arena. Same with the, uh, the swimming pool, Jasper Place uh, swimming pool. Mm-hmm. It's been taken over by uh, community clubs instead of the high school itself. Mm-hmm. And the football field is still there. It's called the football field, and the high school still uses that. And there's a big racetrack around it to, for the race uh, uh, track and field events. Yeah. Shot put, uh, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, we had one guy, his name was Kiro Apsa. He jumped the triple jump and had the record, Canadian record for quite a while. And, uh, you take off at a fast sprint and you jump, sprint, jump. And three, three jumps involved, eh? Mm-hmm. And he, he, he made a Canadian record. <clears throat> and I was in high school. <laughs> wow. I wasn't even in college. Well, I went to college for two years. And I took business at uh, Nate, Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. And uh, I had this one course to call computers uh, at that time. And I just wanted to update myself on how to do work with computers. But the computer room was the size of the big, a, a, a big room. That was the computer. <laughs> <laughs> And we had to punch in these little cards, you know, like uh, yeah. they were tabbed and everything, and we had to program the D-base and the database and uh, all the programs that we, we needed. We we put that into the sort of the city, a big machine, and they would grind out the program and everything like that. Uh, I don't think they have that kind of thing anymore. I think people do CPUs and all that stuff by already made, eh? handmade already. Mm-hmm. And a program is already ba- made, a deprogramming database and all that. But in those days, it was quite like the beginning of the uh, computer. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was quite a thing, but I took it because uh, <coughs> I, I was interested in the uh, in the uh, in the new technology at that time, and I was, you know, in 1970. Uh, in computers, and later on, I was, you know, I was right. It did become to be a major, major thing in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, do you want to talk about when you first went to school, residential school? Oh, I I went there one. They sent me one year where I, uh, I think I was only about seven or eight years old. My aunts and uh, my aunties were already there, so they thought, well, it would be safe anyway to send him there while he's while he's attending school. And they had the school right in the in the residential school, so all your grades were taught right there. You didn't have to go into the city to, like they did later on. The kids were were bused into the, to the city schools to take their schooling. Uh, I did my classroom work in the, in the school. There was a library there, there was teachers, there was desks, there were 
you were taught from, uh, I think, about 8 o'clock till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, whatever subjects that the teachers had. And they had the um, church was turned, uh, converted into a, uh, the, the desks, could, I mean, the pews could be put aside and it could be turned into a, like, a, like a gym where your uh, phys ed programs were held inside the uh, church. And we had, uh, there was um, the basketball nets. Those would go up into the ceiling, eh? And then when they went to church, they just put the fuse back on. And then, you know, basketball nets would be up there. And we had uh, the other sports that we, you know, could be, because they had a racetrack there, uh, they had a hockey rink, and everything you could think of. <clears throat> we um, we had uh, teachers from, it seemed like at the time, mainly from uh, new uh, new immigrants into the country, uh, mainly uh, East Indian or Pakistani, who were our teachers, eh? Really? And uh, to the point where we were almost... Uh, we had accents, so the Eng our English accents were the same as the <laughs> Pakistanis. And, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. And we had them uh, as our teachers and supervisors and people I worked with, cooks and all that. So it was uh, quite the experience. But anyway, as I was saying, I went there for, when I, I believe I was about eight or nine. And it could have been nine or ten. But um, I, my grandfather drove me there, and because he was told by the uh, local uh, constabulary and uh, RCMP and the ministers and that that I had to go to school in uh, Edmonton at the residential school, or go to the residential school here in uh, Obima, and my grandfather. Uh, and my grandmother, my grandmother is United Church, and they didn't, weren't too pleased with sending me to a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. But they uh, wanted me to go to the nearest uh, United Church or Methodist uh, at the time was uh, Edmonton, St. Albert. And that's where I went. But I only lasted for a week. I didn't, uh, I wasn't, I just, couldn't um, handle being away from my uh, grandparents and my from home, eh? And uh, finally, uh, to the point where I was uh, doing uh, things that they didn't normally people don't normally do in uh, residential school. Uh, I, there was uh, somebody uh, coming around at nighttime and bothering people, eh? Mm -hmm. So I snuck out uh, one night and I went down to the uh, supervisor's uh, um, room, which was not far from uh, our dorm. So I went, I snuck there. I went to knock on his, on his door and I said, 
Hey, you know, there's uh, somebody bothering the little boys in our in our dorm. Is there something they can do? So they um, just sort of caught him in the act. Or, yeah. And uh, also my my testimony, and then they uh, fired him on the spot right on that that same day. And uh, I was um, sleeping at his, uh, in, on the floor in, in his room because I, I mean, in the person I went to, uh, to get help from. And next day I went back to the, to my, my own dorm and, and they, they said, oh, there's that little boy that helped us. <laughs> like I was just. I, I think everybody was way older than I was, and uh, nobody was the same age as me. Mm -hmm. And then they had, they had us do chores. And uh, one of the things I did was I, uh, I was given a broom, and I had to sweep all three levels of the, uh, all the way down to the basement. I had to sweep them every day, in the, once in the morning. And once at night, you know, sweeping the floors all the way down, all the way down to the main level. And um, I seen these uh, guys coming in from outside because I was still taking my time sweeping the floors. I think it was about, like I was supposed to be in bed at 10, but I kept on sweeping because I didn't finish my job. Yeah. They came in at about midnight and they said they were over at the graveyard and uh, one of the um, guys said, there's a, this guy that he was dropped off from uh, the hospital and he won't lie down. <laughs> yeah, so they, they dumped him off by truck or something like that and they threw him at, at our um, gravesite and we had to bury them. So I went running down to the supervisor's room and I said, but sir, sir, you know the 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 guy won't lie down. What? In the staff room of the staff. Mm -hmm. I said, "There's a guy out there in the graveyard. He won't lie down." <laughs> <laughs> so they went out and checked. Sure enough, this guy had rigor mortis or something. They had, to, they had to hold him down, like with rocks or whatever, so that he wouldn't spring back <laughs> up. You know. And oh my God! I know it's crazy. <clears throat> so the the other times I I kind of I think what it was is that they thought I had uh, TB because I was coughing, but I I think I was just probably cold. I had a cold, or um, sometimes I'm allergic to uh, spring and fall pollen. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a uh, allergic reaction, but they. Uh, I uh, called my grandfather to come and get me. It was only about a week into this uh, experience, and he came and got me, and then they said, we have to get your approval so that he can go to uh, Charles Council to be checked for uh, uh, TB, you know, get a chest X-ray, and to make sure that he doesn't, uh, you know, if he has TB, then he could infect the whole, uh, the entire school. So, um, 
I, I think I was in council for about six months until uh, they finally gave me a clean bill of health and said, you know, you're okay. But the experiences at that hospital too was <laughs> kind of worse than uh, residential school. Cause the nuns that were in there made us uh, pray every day, uh, three times, four times a day. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm. But, you know, at nighttime we would be told uh, to keep our hands up for some strange reason uh, because they said the, um, the the angel of death walks around looking to take home some people and if your hand isn't up he's going to take you so that's really the little voice <laughs> trying to sleep and he got my hands up but we figured out something we, we could tie our uh, our uh, laces to our wrist and then tie it up on the top bunk or you know if the guy's on the top bunk then he could put his on the light fixture and that mm -hmm. so uh, oh, nuns weren't too happy with that but that's <laughs> what that's kind of it. treatment were they were they doing i don't know all we did was just uh, lie in our beds all day and watch tv and you know sometimes go to the playroom and play around um, they gave us medication, you know, like uh, pills that we had to take every day, mm -hmm. different kind of pills. There were some pills that you you dare not bite into because they were horrible. Uh, we always, always dare each other. Somebody tried biting those pills. <laughs> <laughs> they were like cod liver pills and cod liver oil pills. They were horrible. <laughs> and then there was horse pills. You know, really big pills that you had a hard time swallowing. I don't know if they were experimental or what the heck they were, but we, uh, we hated the pill period. <clears throat> and they would check to make sure that you did take the pill. Check your mouth, check mm -hmm. all around your bed, make sure you didn't throw any pills away. And uh, I know for a while there, I couldn't walk. I was on crutches for some strange reason. While you were at the hospital? Yeah, yeah. And uh, they couldn't figure out, oh, the doctors couldn't figure out why I couldn't walk. There didn't seem to be anything wrong with my legs. And they said it's probably because... Uh, the bed rest? Uh, he needs to, yeah. He needs to stay off, off his legs. I think I was probably homesick, and probably that's why I was... I got sick, mm -hmm. and then I couldn't eat uh, porridge. Like they tried to force porridge on me every morning, and I couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. uh, I know in residential school, what I did was that porridge was I threw it against the stone wall behind me, and <laughs> I got dragged upstairs, and I was given uh, uh, three lashes on each hand because I refused to eat porridge. But I never ate porridge in my life. I still don't. Yeah. And uh, even as a baby, my mom said that I, yeah. they tried to give me porridge when I was three or four months old, and I just kind of started ratching away. And <laughs> okay. Couldn't eat porridge and save my life. Yeah, I remember you would tell us that the story yeah. about the porridge. Yeah. And I said they they you didn't eat it, yeah. and they kept. Uh, 
kept it every there for, every for the next every meal. meal. Yeah, they bring it back every meal. And finally, they they thought they'd get smart and bring me a fresh fresh bowl at every meal, but still I wouldn't eat it. Eh? And then I was getting hungrier and hungrier. And then they said that uh, you're not leaving this table till that bowl is empty. Yeah, yeah. and it'd still be there in missing missing classes. And they'd say, oh, well, we better have to uh, go upstairs for class. But, but at lunchtime, you're getting that table for it. Yeah, but that w that was when you th threw it against the wall. Yeah, and broke it. Yeah. It's there. It's empty. Yeah, there. You want me to finish it? It's done. <laughs> I got dragged up by my ears and stuff. Everybody thought I was gonna get killed. This is you know, not uh, cooperating with the with the school. I said, how can a little boy like this? Uh, fight the whole school. <laughs> he's the smallest kid here, yet he's the one that's uh, causing all the problems. Uh, call his grandfather and come and get him. <laughs> and my grandfather was, uh, I think he was chief at the time, he came and got me. <clears throat> but then I had to go to Council Hospital. And then you didn't see anybody for over six months? Six months, three to six months, I think it was. But I uh, sure knew a lot of Eskimo kids that were there. Oh, yeah? Some of them died and were sent to uh, the graveyard at the residential because the, the nuns said that they, they didn't have family. Mm -hmm. And... That's why they were being sent to the school to in cardboard boxes. Can you believe it? Go dumped off in a truck. Yeah. Here's yeah. some more uh, bodies for you guys to bury. Yeah. And so, when was that period? The... I was in the late fifties, early sixties, and then in '63 I came back, back to school full time at the school. So I missed there was a period of three or four years that were that was gone. Yeah gone out of it. And you were back here? No, yeah, it's back going to school here in uh, in uh, Obima. Mm. I think it was uh, grade four or five. I uh, got my first, because of uh, Camsel, they said I needed glasses. So I came back here and they gave me my first pair. I couldn't believe how uh, how you know just you couldn't explain it. It's so intense. Every leaf, every blade of grass you could see, and yeah. I couldn't believe how focused everything <laughs> was. Oh. Yeah, I was. Uh, I couldn't believe how long I was blind. Eh? Maybe about uh, nine or ten years. <clears throat> but I managed to get along. You know. Get, Make it. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, because my vision's pretty bad too, and yeah. so I'm thinking back to like just going to like the movie theater. And I didn't think anything of it, <laughs> and then after getting glasses, it's like, oh, you can I'm actually like, like see the see people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't believe. Or I just sit directly under the TV. Yeah, screen. right under the TV screen. And then Eli and Preston would be running around in the back. So that was uh, oh yeah. So the story you were telling about the um, the snake. Yep. That was uh, so you were 
your grandfather would take you to council meetings? Yep. Gen- um, often? He'd, go, he'd, go, he'd make home visits to the uh, uh, various councillors, and the councillors would gather the other people, the elders and the community members at those meetings. It wouldn't be like at the band office or, you know, uh, band hall, because we didn't have those at the time. Uh, people would gather by uh, wagon, uh, by a horse and buggy, or tractors, or whatever ways they could get to for the meeting. And that would be their council meetings. And they'd get, you know, they'd have a feast, uh, sort of like a mini feast. Yeah. Where people brought food and, you know, they ate at the uh, council meetings and have a fire going at the same time. And it seemed like um, you had the whole community involved. You know, the older people, the young people, and the uh, families were represented at uh, at those meetings. And the counselors as well. And was it uh, like a mix of uh, traditional governance and the, like how the Indian Act came in? Or yeah, it was uh, the old timers. The old timers on council would be the ones leading the charge. Eh? Like they'd, they'd direct the conversation or discussions on whatever had to be talked about. Eh? And they passed around. Uh, um, a feather and sometimes a stick for their turn to talk eh? mm-hmm. and everybody listened to it all. and sometimes when they had to make decisions it wouldn't be by majority vote it'd have to be by consensus like everybody had to agree and if there was a disagreement then you, you dealt with that disagreement at that meeting until that person um you sort of either you agreed with him or he agreed with you, and you know, it was really long meeting mm-hmm. because of that. And I, mean, I think that's traditional, where in a modern Indian act would be uh, by majority rule. You know, mm-hmm. Whoever's in favor, raise your hand. And, you know, those that are against, well, too bad. You've been outvoted, and it seemed like it was, those decisions were were better. Um, supported in that way because you know everybody there was a consensual agreement amongst yeah. uh, people it wasn't just the counselors too that were involved it was every one that wanted to speak to it or talk about it and uh, they were given a chance on floor to uh, to say what they had to say what are some examples of the um, discussions or the uh, topic well, in, when I was um, going to those meetings, uh, it was it was uh, you know sometimes based on the economy, the economic situation of our community, because we had no uh, power, we had no running water, we had no uh, uh, employment in the reserve, and we were dependent on uh, the government, and they said in those meetings that we need to to depend more on ourselves instead of waiting at hand and foot with a hat in our hand at going to the uh, agency 
to get whatever we needed. Eh? Mm-hmm. And in those days in Cree, the agency was called Asake Ungongum, Asake Ungongwa, which means the place where you get food. They would give you, hand out food to you, you know, did it, it, you know, whatever little stipends that they could give you, mm-hmm. they give it to you. And it was like a handout place. That's what they call the Indian agency. And uh, a lot of people said we shouldn't be, we're not teaching our people anything when we when we get them to just go and get handouts from the agency office. So they said they were trying to figure out ways on how to uh, to get our people uh, working, either planting gardens for themselves or farming their own areas or raising cattle, horses, any ways to make money or, you know, to build crafts, uh, craft work, uh, anything to, to make money or even to sell pelts and add beaver pelts and and uh, furs for uh, various animals they could get money for. There was even people um, chopping down uh, uh, posts to make posts. They'd get five cents a post. You know, you get uh, like a hundred posts, you know, you're making quite a bit of money. But you could buy groceries and that. You have all all this wagon load of posts going to the the store in Obima. And that's where uh, these people would buy those posts, eh? And in those days, you could see behind the store was these posts just stacked so high because people kept buying <laughs> it. And then they provided, uh, they had ideas on, on uh, other than selling the posts, uh, to fence the whole reserve, you know, and provide uh, hourly uh or uh, you give people so much, uh, half a mile to uh, um, make a fence. They'd provide the, uh, the government would provide the barbed wire and the nails. And what you had to do is just provide the posts and you'd make the posts. And you'd get paid for, uh, for fencing a whole half a mile or a mile of posts. That was pretty good money too. And then you'd hay the meadows, like uh, the grass. Mm-hmm. It was like a dollar a bale. Mm. You could load up a wagon with maybe 50, 60 bales. It'd take you maybe a whole day to do that, but that was another way of, uh, you know, taking it to the bull farm. They had a, they had a bull farm here where they bought the the, uh, the bales, and you know, that's how people made money at the same time. It was like a farmer's market, I guess, in those days. Mm-hmm. Make bills and make posts and that. All that. My dad was involved in all that stuff. It was uh, sort of the self self sufficiency we were trying to teach our people. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of discussions they used to have. Like this one guy would say, like I have five sons, I need them to be working, not just laying around the house, not doing anything, you know. And, uh, that's how they developed those programs. Council would pr- would take the idea up to the uh, agency, to, to the Indian agency, and say that we've got this program. We want you to support us. And that's how those programs started. It's called Winter Works Project. They'd provide work during the winter so people wouldn't starve during the winter time. 
They're also called uh, slashing, where they mow down all the trees to clear for the land, eh? mm -hmm. and then they pick roots, uh, pull the roots out of the ground so that uh, you could plant a crop in the spring. Yeah. So that was a make project where they slashed all the trees down and cleared the land so people could go to could be farming. And they picked up stones, they, they gathered all the stones from the various areas and, you know, took them to the gravel pit. I think there are more, uh, back, then, back then, I think there were more industrious back then, uh, getting, getting uh, providing for their own families and that. Mm -hmm. And plus, you know, they, they went hunting and that to provide food and that for uh, people. And there wasn't that many vehicles around that time. Uh, uh, the best, at best, maybe you had a tractor and you could pull a wagon. But more, more, more often it's a horse and buggy or a horse and wagon that get you to to, to Obima and back. And there was a lot of horse trails in, around at that time. Yeah, so <clears throat> were the roads all in place or it was just... No, that, was, that came later when a survey crew came in. They said we have to have roads going north and south, east and west in a straight line. Because we had roads running around all over the place. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all over the map. So uh, now we even have, uh, like I tell uh, um, John, my son, uh, I said, they built roads right over the slough, and then they wonder why the roads are so bad. I said, yeah, when you build right over a slough, you're going to have a problem with your road. Mm -hmm. And still today, the roads running over the slough are not that good. Because underground, it just must be an underground stream running underground or something like that. Mm -hmm. And these were where also major, where the major oil fields were before. Eh? And so when you get rid of all that oil that's under there, it, the ground is sort of like a big sinkhole and it just crumbles down to wherever it is and the road comes along with it and it, mm -hmm. you have to keep constantly uh, rebuilding the road because the, the land is sinking. <clears throat> yeah, there's some of those where uh, some of the uh, discussions that I I didn't understand. Uh, they were talking about treaty, treaty rights at the time, like uh, healthcare, education, mm. and uh, agricultural and economic development. They said these were were promises that were made by the government, but they're not providing them. We're, uh, we have to keep on pressing the government to to give us, you know. A, to acknowledge our rights that we have under treaty. And I picked that up through my uh, understanding of the uh, the language and uh, I had a hard time understanding what what uh, treaty uh, meant. But when they explained it in, uh, uh, when it's attached either to healthcare or to uh, any of the rights that we're, uh, we have, then it, uh, you can understand it that way. The treaty right to education, they wanted 
they wanted education to be amongst our people so that we could learn the ways of the uh, of, uh, dominant society or uh, white men then, as they called it back then. And so our young people could, would be able to, uh, you know, be provide, turn around and help help our own people eh, with the education that they have. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think the government thought they meant education meant for them to send us to residential school, which was, they got it wrong. It was supposed to be schools in their communities. Uh, the education in our communities, I mean, not necessarily buildings, rock, bricks and mortar, but mm-hmm. you know, the education process had to happen within our communities. And I think that's one of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, 94 recommendations that they're making uh, under, uh, I think it's 23 or 24. Uh, and also the UNDRIP, uh, United Nations uh, Declaration on the Indigenous Rights for our people, Indian people, that the education has to reflect our understanding of uh, what treaty right to education means and meant to us. Mm-hmm. back then and what it means to us now. So those kinds of discussions were kind of over my pay grade at the time. <laughs> yeah. Just a little kid, I couldn't understand that. And what, what was the, um, like, the understanding of the treaty process? It was, uh, like, like, my grandfather told me one time when I was a kid, he said, you know these treaties that we have, he said, uh, my grandson, uh, you have to understand as best as you can, can understand. If, if, you, if you understand it, then the treaty, well, you'll know what the treaty means to us. And he said, it, if, the treaties are so sacred to us that the white man or the government, federal or provincial government, if they try and break them, they can't. No matter how big their armies are, no matter how large their uh, fund is, their, their money, how much money they have, no matter what they do, they can never break the treaties. Because the only one that can break the treaty is ourselves. The only one that can break the treaty is you as an Indian person. If you agree to break the treaty, then it'll be broken because it's no longer holding the government back or uh, the the, uh, forces that they have, the money that they have, it'll all be broken. And we see that today. Some of the bands are taking provincial funding, which is kind of against treaty. It's always got to be the federal government that that we made the agreement with. Mm-hmm. We didn't make an agreement with the provinces. We made the agreement with the with the federal the federal government. Mm-hmm. And for the province to try and step in there, it's it's not it's not going to work because eventually um, the federal government will say, "Well, hey, you're getting it from the province. Why should we give you any more money? You already got it. You know, so mm-hmm. get off our back." And uh, because it's a secret agreement that's supposed to go on forever and a day, uh, 
we we hold the the government accountable for the for those rights, mm-hmm. and we'll always will unless, like my grandfather said, it'll it'll be only us that we're the only ones that can break our own treaties. And a lot of times, uh, I see a lot of our leaders, or I see a lot of our communities breaking down because they don't have no money, they have no income, they have no employment, they have nothing. And the only ones that are providing money are the province. And I say, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll take that money, then I'll just... Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, Harold Cardinal, uh, former president of the Indian Association, of which I was president of one time too, said that the we're talking about the making us equal in Canada. He said, you know what that's going to mean? Yes, he said, that we could be we could be equal, but then how equal are we going to be when we're going to be the poorest of the poor in the cities and the province and wherever we're at because that's what's going to happen. We're going to be the poorest of the poor. We're not going to be equal. We're going to be living in uh, mm-hmm. really dire conditions and it's not uh, what I'm... Uh, now, what I want to see our people, uh, what happened to ha- that to happen to us as Indian people. And when I negotiated the uh, treaty, for one time the discussions one time, my grandfather was talking about birds and the uh, ducks and all that. They said there's a big discussion about the rights of uh, ducks and uh, birds in Ottawa. The government wants to give more rights to the ducks and the birds. He said they they need they need protection. And he said, and um, as a result, the Migratory Birds Act came into effect, where it's unlawful for you to uh, hunt ducks and geese unless at certain times of the year. Mm-hmm. You can't kill kill birds just for the heck of it. You need a well, you just you just can't. <laughs> you know, sometimes they give you permits to do that, but uh, yeah. nine times out of ten, it's it's something that uh, it's 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 unlawful to do. Mm-hmm. And these uh, birds are protected, even there where they are, where they land and stuff. It's you can't farm over it. You can't destroy that that lake or that pond where they they go to because that land is protected for them. It's there where they come to lay eggs and stuff like that. And, uh, so uh, my grandfather and uh, that, well, he was on the on the board of directors for the Indian Association. And Harold Cardinal at the time said, "Geez, when he was asked on TV, you know, he was on uh, he'd been interviewed by uh, CFRN or CTV. Uh, he was asked about the Migratory Birds Act, what he thought about it." how it affect his people and that. And he said, you know, one thing I got to say right at the outset, he said, I wish I had the negotiators of the ducks <laughs> <laughs> so we could protect our people like that, he said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was uh, pretty sharp. But the elders taught him to, to say that, eh? Mm-hmm. But you know, Grandpa was on there, on the board of directors. And so we hear a lot of people talk about the, like it uh, wasn't an agreement to give up the land and uh, that it was like a partnership agreement to, to share the land. Yeah. And so 
what have you heard about that being lost in the translation? Or yeah, or? it was lost in the translation because we we didn't. There's no word for surrender in Cree, but that's what they put into the treaty that we surrendered these lands that we ceded forever and ever. We didn't surrender the land. Mm -hmm. We we allowed like what you're saying that to share the land, the animals and the feed and all that with the, with with the settlers. And we we held the reserve lands that we have now. We we sort of in, in the literal interpretation is land that we held back. We didn't give up the reserve land. This is land that we have held in. We were going to that will always be ours. Mm -hmm. It's never our our sovereignty is on that land. There, it's never been given up. The reserve land is a uh, is sovereign land. No, not part of the treaty. Not part of the treaty. It's land that's um, it's gun is what the the Cree word is for for the land. It means what's left over, or what not that hasn't been in in the other parts of the agreement. It's land that's and that's ours and will be ours forever. Mm. <clears throat> that's what was lost in the translation. The government didn't. Thought, oh, we got everything. It's all land. Mm -hmm. But when you interpret the treaty as we interpret it, that's what it means. It means that uh, there's land that hasn't been uh, given up. And also, you know, like they say, Nehil Mamtenechkan, which means Cree law. We have uh, uh, our own laws that we abide by and we uh, uh, you know that we live, live, live under, mm -hmm. and now uh, some um, academics in the, in the legal field are saying that you know there's a there's a, an understanding amongst our people that we had we had laws, rules, and regulations that we lived under by tradition. Maybe we should start following those in some of our court cases and some of our what we do uh, legally in our restorative justice, what we do with our communities. Mm. And mm -hmm. I think I can see that happening, yeah. coming on down the road. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the thing that, you know, Willie Ilchall always says that we have, we have authority over, uh, for example, the criminal code, because they never asked us about that, whether we agreed to it. They just took it over, assuming that we, they said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, take it. But they don't realize that we, we, we held back that authority and said, one of these days, we're going to have that authority. We're going to be able to, to, to provide what we need to do against the criminals in our society and deal with them as we see fit. Mm -hmm. And uh, that day is going to be coming in the future. Maybe not in our lifetime, but maybe sometime in the, down the road, that'll happen. Mm -hmm. Little things like that, that the the treaty, um, you know, treaty is really an interesting process because people that don't have treaties, like in BC, kind of scoff at treaties and say, nah, we're not treaty, you guys are treaty. And they don't realize that, that a lot of the rights that we have are, they are also beneficiaries of those uh, treaties. Mm -hmm. Like healthcare, education. If it weren't for the treaties, 
The BC Indians wouldn't be getting education. If it weren't for the trees, they wouldn't be getting health care. They yeah. wouldn't be getting all this stuff. And, uh, you know, they feel it's not the, uh, <clears throat> it's because the government uh, provides these to uh, all their people and that. And, uh, I say, yeah, but they provide to them to us because it's a uh, treaty right to health care, a treaty right to education. Mm-hmm. One of the things about health care is how to take care of us during the times of pandemic, for example. They're supposed to provide us uh, food, shelter, clothing, um, if we're facing a time of famine, sickness, or uh, times of ill health, and voila, mm-hmm. pandemic, and uh, that's a treaty right that we need to get uh, help from the, the from the government. Mm-hmm. Not only the uh, federal government, but the the money that they, the feds give in transfer payments, transfer payments to the province for their for their for their health care. We're part of that as well because we're counted in the mix. You know, their numbers, our numbers, are counted mm-hmm. when they do the transfer payments uh, to the provinces. And a lot of provinces, like Saskatchewan, they make a a good living by uh, numbers of Indian people that are on the uh, on the books. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the amount of money that get they get cut from the they get uh, uh, from the federal government because the federal government cuts that much off. For the, from the national budget because of per capita in a, in a province that'll be their share for the uh, for health care hmm. and if you said well not for the Indian part there wouldn't be that many uh, uh, there wouldn't be that much money going to some places in some provinces the native population is more than the uh, than the uh, non-native mm-hmm. one thing that I was thinking about was like uh, this whole process where they, in the treaty, they changed what was agreed upon and and that. And uh, like coming into the negotiations, the, it, like it was uh, with us and the Crown, yeah. right? And so going into that, the Crown knew what their authority was yeah. and their jurisdiction, so to speak. Yeah. And being also connected to things like the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and other pieces of legislation and law that they followed. Um, So they go, them going into it, they knew what power they had. But then it was uh, like, you know, they're signing off on the fact that, yeah, we're going to, to go into this agreement, the treaty with the Indians and just get the agreement drafted and then yeah. in Canada with the government yeah, 11 they were pages. the ones that were doing the um, misinterpretation mm-hmm. and the basically lying about what was mm-hmm. being agreed upon mm-hmm. so that seems to be like an important point that uh, the agreement was between us and the crown and the crown knew that they couldn't enter in an agreement like that because yeah. of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And so, yeah, like it has to be opened up again to yeah. be a fair process on yeah. what was actually discussed and agreed upon. One of the things that uh, I was told by my grandfather again and other uh, elders, 
they said the the process of treaty negotiations back then, according to their uh, understanding, is that the people met for for four days before the meeting with the uh, commissioner. And in each one of those four days, they had they had discussions on what they wanted to be um, included in the treaty. They wanted to, they had discussions from all corners of the uh, the territory to, to, to say, well, this is what they got in Treaty 1 and this is what they got in Treaty uh, 6 or whatever. And they, they said, well, this is what we've got to say when we come to those meetings that we've had, you know, discussions with our people on what it means to, to for, for this treaty. Um, Actually, Alexander Morris, who was the main uh, uh, main negotiator in this area and also in Treaty 7, uh, asked one of the chiefs, he said, well, how much money is it going to take for us to fulfill your promises? You know, you, you're asking for quite a bit here. How much money is that? And the, then the chief took a handful of sand, had in his hand, he said, this much, can you count every grain? That's how much money we're going to need. Mm. And you know, it's probably about a million grounds. And that, <laughs> you know, at that time, it's a, a lot of money, eh? And, yeah. And Alexander Morris said, that's, you know, I'm trying to be serious. And the chief would say, well, that's, I'm serious too. We're not only looking at today. We're looking towards the future for our children's children. Mm -hmm. How much they, uh, they will uh, need when it comes to their time. And the amount that you're offering is not enough. We need, we need you to, to, because it's not enough, we need you to agree to this promise going on and on and on. That we, we're, at least we got that part where the treaties are going to be uh, for generations that in add in, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> perpetuity and my grandfather said that the interpreter didn't really understand also what we were asking for so there was translation lost in his translation to the to the government and then when he did get a proper interpretation the commissioner said, well, I have to get back to you. I have to go to the, you know, the Queen Mother to ask them if they will be allowed, they will uh, agree to this. And during that time, whatever treaty we were, uh, right, we were asking for, the commissioner didn't have authority other than what he was given. And he said, get this uh, agreement uh, like this, and if they ask for more, then you got to go, we got to go back to our... Uh, our uh, house parliament in, in uh, England or, or uh, you know, like the 1753 agreement, all that has to be put into place so this treaty will make sense. Lord Denning, who was a uh, famous uh, judge in uh, House of Lords in, in, uh, in England uh, during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, I think even the 70s, when I went to negotiate, when we went to negotiate our constitutional rights with the government back then, I was uh, 
selected as one of the delegates to go in to London. I asked him that question. I said, the the rights that we have in the treaty, uh, do you think it's it is possible that the government could, could say that these treaties are domestic treaties, not international treaties, and, and on uh, such a domestic treaty could be, you know, uh, washed away with the legislation or whatever? And as a, as a judge, being a very famous judge, he said, no, the treaties that you have are very, very strong. Those are your rights that you negotiated back then, and they'll never be able to break them unless you people agree to, uh, you know, not have any more treaty rights. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. And we were sitting around a group of chiefs from Canada, and, uh, you know, a, a judge, a very respected Supreme Court judge in uh, England, Agreed to uh, a House of Lords judge to agree to 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 say that our treaties are very strong, and not uh, like some people are so like some lawyers and some people are saying that they're not. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, I brought that message back to the Seventy uh, First Nations and to the, our provincial chiefs, and uh, everybody's really. Pleased that the that the House of Lords at least was on our side because we went and lobbied all the uh, we went and lobbied the, uh, the British government to make sure that we had Section 35 and 25 in the Constitution of uh, Canada. Yeah. So. So a long about way of answering your question. That's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I think those treaties are very sacred and uh, very strong. Well, we could probably just end there for yeah, for yeah, now. Yeah, it's getting kind of dark good, here. <laughs> good, good time. All right. Yeah, so a couple things that I wanted to ask you about was, uh, so I'm doing this podcast where I'm going to be talking about sports. So if we could start with what what's the uh, traditional word for sports? Metoi gun means to to play. Yeah. To play. Uh, it's 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 an activity that involves uh, playing games. Metoi gun. There's a person that does that. Eh? I got to to play would be kametoi. Mm. All right. And that includes a full gamut, right, from playing cards to uh, actually playing hockey or something like that. You know. Oh yeah. And so the, like, uh, hand game was pretty popular? Yeah, it was one of the traditional sports that was, uh, or traditional games uh, that we had in our communities before the, uh, the settlers arrived in, in, uh, in our lands. It, it uh, involved uh, competition between both, um, both teams. It was a team sport, men, women, uh, involved in it, and it involves sticks and a uh, one of the stones. Uh, one of the uh, sticks would be marked in such a way that the uh, opposing party would, uh, or the opposing team would uh, would guess which which hand you had the uh, uh, the piece, and also which player had the piece in their in the uh, in their hands, and they would all be. Uh, singing uh, traditional songs as they're 
competing against each other. Yeah. And it involved, uh, before, it didn't involve money back then, but it involves money now. But it was possessions, all kinds of, all kinds of things that they could um, bet against each other. And, and it was uh, uh, sometimes uh, an enjoyable game. Otherwise, other times it was very fierce. For maybe it involved, uh, uh, for example, horses, or uh, or maybe even losing some some of your young men or women to the opposing side to, as uh, part of the uh, sacrifice or losing the game. Wow. So it became very fierce. Yeah, I've heard stories where there were even uh, hand games, as they were called, um, where it involved territory where they're playing against each other for a certain territory. And if you won, well then that was your territory. If not, you had to move out and get, go and find new territory for game or whatever mm -hmm. uh, that, you, that you were playing for. So it was very intense. And also it could be very enjoyable. It could also be very uh, life-threatening too in some cases where some parties didn't, didn't like the the they had lost and <laughs> they had to give up whatever it was. Yeah. So if you were a good player, you you probably had some like uh, some a good standing in the community. Oh yes, yes, and uh, they would uh, always send you out first to to go and challenge the other team, eh? just to, to show them that we you had the strength and and the power to uh, overcome whatever they sent towards you. Mm -hmm. You know we. We did this uh, study a few years back for the uh, province of Alberta, and we we got it from legends of the uh, the elders that that this had been going on since they could remember. You know, time immemorial, the, these games had had continued, and, and it was one of the traditional games that that uh, we still hold on to today. And and there's competitions, and and one tournament in um, the state of Montana, for example, last Christmas, I believe it was a, the prize, total prize money was in, a, you know, in five figures. Wow. And sometimes six figures if it's a real big, uh, big uh, tournament. And of course, uh, you know, the, the regulating authorities will always try and get in there, you know, trying to, trying to say, you know, it's our, it's our jurisdiction and powers for for us to to uh, put, patrol this uh, this activity, and you can't, you guys just can't do set up a game and you know start making tons of money. But mm -hmm. we claimed our sovereignty in that, and we've uh, provided uh, you know evidence that uh, that we we uh, we were doing this kind of activity through oral testimony testimony from our from our elders and and uh, also. The um, fact that many of our people still remember how to play this game on, on a given. Yeah. So at one point, were they underground? They had to be played. Oh yes, in the early thirties uh, and twenties uh, and forties, uh, you couldn't do these, these these kinds of games because they were outlawed by legislation uh, or by I don't know if it was legislation, but by rules and regulations of the uh, Indian Affairs mm -hmm. or the Indian Agency. And, you know, you, you face jail time 
if you got caught uh, participating in these games. There was also ceremonies, traditional ceremonies that were had as a result of the hand games eh, before and after that uh, people still subscribe to today. What, what sort of uh, ceremonies? Uh, like fasting and uh, also the uh, giving of uh, prints and tobacco and things like that to uh, to get the game started and to uh, also to vouch for each one of the participants in, on either team. Mm. And ceremonies like this, there'd be, uh, they'd allow either dancing behind the... Uh, the players were, was sometimes not allowed unless you had a ceremony, because sometimes those kind that kind of dancing also is involves the uh, kind of dancing that's done at uh, a religious uh, traditional ceremony like the sun dance, which you needed elders and that to uh, to to give you the right mm -hmm. to do those kinds of dances and they'd have those kinds of dances and singing. Um, done at the hand games. Mm. Also, there were certain songs that they uh, sang at these uh, at these uh, competitions, either before and after that uh, they needed to be followed. And you couldn't just bring in any old song and think that's going to fly over everybody. That they'd stop you right away and say, "You have to sing a song that uh, we know, that we recognize, and." Otherwise, it's unfair for you to uh, to to do this song without us uh, also uh, being in approval, because that could be an advantage in uh, in a game if uh, if it's a song that the opposing party doesn't uh, doesn't know or understand. So, those are the kind of ceremonies I was I was talking about. Yeah, and last time we were talking a bit about sports and uh, that you played as a kid. Mm -hmm. And were there any, like, uh, games that were played here? You know, well, when, when, during, uh, like, in the month of June, we used to have these uh, activities in the community where, where Indian affairs would, would bring in uh, rations, you know, food rations, clothing rations, any, any blankets, uh, that kind of thing, to, to a central location in, in our community. And from that, the uh, community members would, you know, get the, the kids to uh, run around in races, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, 50-yard dashes. And I don't know if they marked them off, but, you know, whoever came across uh, first was the winner and cut uh, prizes from the adults. Um, there would be leg wrestling uh, championships between... Uh, some of the uh, younger younger men. Uh, there would be bannock making contests with the the young ladies and the older ladies, and these kinds of like fun activities to pass the whole day through the whole day, so that uh, people you know have it have it as a fun day as mm -hmm. as well as just collecting uh, the rations. The rations were. Uh, like spam or sport cans of them, you'd receive uh, one or two um, cartons of those per family, and those would last you for for quite a while. My dad used to always like uh, frying up those uh, 
spam and spork and yeah. things like that and put it on a piece of bannock and it tastes pretty good. Um, we also had um, um, flour and salt and sugar that I was handing out at the same time. And, and some of the little kids would always get uh, uh, shoes and runners and stuff like that that they might need during the year for uh, for the uh, school and that. Mm-hmm. And the older ladies would um, would that uh, like Indian friends wouldn't bring them, but the other ladies would bring cloths and uh, trade amongst themselves as far as the, uh, the sewing materials. So they, they you know they would they would uh, be able to make some clothing and stuff for uh, for the fall and winter. As well as, you know, bringing furs, like beaver pelts, um, coyote, uh, wolf, uh, I don't know if there's any wolf, but uh, beaver and uh, um, deer and um, and buffalo uh, fur that they had traded from other other people. Mm. Uh, this morning, uh, I was looking out my my backyard, and there was a couple of deer standing right in the field there eating grass. Oh, wow. Couldn't believe it. I went to uh, go move the uh, <coughs> curtains to get a better view, but I must have startled them. They took off. I didn't, I didn't make any noise, but there's still mm-hmm. something. So I think I have some deer hanging around outside, so I'm, I'm going to set a snare and <laughs> trap them with a slip knot or something. Yeah, I could uh, catch a couple of deer. Come for, back with my bow. Yeah. And uh, have some food for the winter. <laughs> yeah. The competitive aspect of powwows and how the there's uh, you know it's pretty lucrative for for dancers uh, was the when did like the the powwow that we that we're so used to start to come about where uh, competition there was a money aspect of it and and that well the 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 powwow which is uh, you know a little bit different from the special kind of dances that they have, like the chicken dance, the owl dance, the horse dance, all these other dances, those are uh, traditional dances mm-hmm. or traditional powwows. Competition is what you're seeing today where they have categories in men's, ladies, women's, seniors and all that. And that came about in the past, uh, I'd say about 20, 30 years. And there's money, huge amounts of money involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember powers way back when I was a kid that there was traditional. Yeah, they still had categories. Yeah, the young tots, the um, teenage categories, the uh, young men, young women, the middle aged, the senior citizens categories. And but that didn't involve uh, money per se. It involved maybe goods, maybe cloth or. Clothing or uh, maybe knives, bone arrows, that kind of thing that they that they traded amongst themselves, that they handed out as prizes for the first place, win- second place winners. So that kind of competition, the money part of it, came in on the later, you know, later part of the century. Mm. But earlier on, past couple hundred years, it was all it was all, and even further back, uh, it was all traditional. Although it still involved uh, the exchange of property between individuals or between the tribes. Yeah, but just more more ceremonial. More ceremonial uh, trade of I mean 
uh, exchange of uh, goods when the mm-hmm. competitions were being held in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's almost like a, a sport in itself with the, the way that it's judged. and uh, Definitely a lot of the dances take a lot of uh, athleticism for the people to be uh, you know, in the top top scoring dancers. We used to have these um, these people we call runners. Eh? That they'd run from one community to the next to pass on a message. For example, when the treaty negotiations were being held in uh, in our land in Turtle Island, the the runners would run from one area after they the results of that treaty were being negotiated and done. They would run just full on to the next community or to the next relay point to convey the message to the next leadership that this is what has been decided in Treaty 1 or in Treaty. So it's up to you guys if you want to get more, maybe ask for more in your in your treaty. Mm. And they would run back. These are like marathon uh, um, uh, lengths, like 26 miles a day mm-hmm. type of thing. And even even further, some people went and sometimes, like in Greek times, it would involve the uh, where a person didn't survive after running uh, so so much and so far in a short length of time. Mm-hmm. So we had those kinds of uh, events as well happening. Yeah. Do you know like, how people would come into that uh, part of the the sort of the roles or the how they would get into a role like that? As a runner? Well, th- they would have friendly competitions within the community where they would determine who would be the the one with the most endurance, also the one that could run the fastest. You know, the one that could run the fastest weren't necessarily the ones that they chose, because you know that guy could run out of steam mm-hmm. uh, after a s- short burst of energy and not last. So they wanted both. They wanted somebody with uh, with the um, endurance aspect of it, and also the the the, the um, be able to run uh, long distance uh, instead of just like a fast walk, but it would be a fast run instead of a, mm-hmm. instead of a, you know for in the competition they would probably win the win it win the competition. We had uh, uh, all of the members of the young people would uh, compete boys against girls, you know I mean uh, boys and girls together. Mm-hmm. Fighting for a spot, and I've never actually heard a, a legend where uh, or a story being told to me, anyway, that uh, uh, where it, uh, the young ladies would uh, would win. But uh, obviously, and I'm not basing this on on any data, but uh, I think that there are young people today that could, you know, enter both fields. Mm-hmm. as uh, either against uh, other young men or other young ladies uh, to, to win a, a competition. We see that today in, in competitions for the Olympics. So I think, you know, it, it, it's quite conceivable that that might have happened back mm-hmm. when, you know, maybe three or four hundred years ago. And what what I was saying relating the story earlier was that the elders would get that information from the runner and say that 
these are the things that we talked about. We This is what we asked for. This is what we got. And then they would have their discussion groups amongst all the uh, chiefs that were gathered there and all the elders and all of the community people. And they would decide, well, when you meet with the um, commissioner, the uh, the one that's negotiating the, the treaty with, with us, this is what you're going to be asking for. Um, if they balk at the deal and say, no, we can't do it, we can't afford it, it's, uh, it's beyond our power, just bring out the fact that, well, you've already negotiated this with our brothers in the, in the East, and you were you didn't have that that uh, that uh, uh, reason before. So why is it now that you're starting to trying to cut corners with us? You mm -hmm. know? If the government or the great mother says that she's she's doing this on a fair basis, well, we want the same as what uh, they got in the other areas. We're not asking for more. We just want to ask for the same amount they got, and maybe. Because of our population, we will get more. But you know, that's mm -hmm. that's something we want to establish. Yeah. And so it's very important. It was very important that these uh, people that ran from community to community, or from tribe to tribe, or from one treaty territory to another treaty ter territory, that they they had all the right inf they had all the information that they could pass on to the next next group. Mm -hmm. Give an example, like a treaty, treaty one to five, didn't have a uh, medicine chest clause in their in their um, treaty. Treaty six, which is around here, they one of the elders or a few of the elders thought it would be important for us to be to be uh, supported and assisted in the care for ourselves, the care by the. Uh, to be able to take care of our, our people too, our young, our old, in, in whatever medicines that they had that they would share with us. And that's where the medicine chest clause came in. Uh, literally, it would be a, like a, a, a safety kit that you have in your vehicle. And this, this is the kind of materials that would be in that, in that chest. What um, would expanded later on to modern terms, it became the healthcare uh, clause within the treaty, and later on, the the government decided, well, since we offered it from six all the way up to the next treaty, so we finished all the treaties. I think it's only fair that we extend it also to the ones, even though they didn't negotiate it, but we'll extend it to all Indian people right across Canada. So yeah. that's how it came to be. And even some people say like the uh, extending it to settlers as well it, as uh, part of their society too it came from the fact that it was given to the Indians yeah. first yes uh, that that was uh, the government's uh, rationale for uh, for offering it to us the other the other thing too is the 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 Commissioners, the people that were negotiating for the government, recognized also there were uh, there were other people like the Métis, the uh, the Inuit, and they decided, well, we have to take. Oh, there's the. Uh, I think it's. Uh, driver. Is it or is it? Um, it's my truck. Oh no, Brian. Oh, Brian. Brian. Yeah. 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 So, 
we I gotta talk to this guy here first. Then. All right. <laughs> Settlers. Now, I would run from here, from this place, all the way to my grandma's place, on a daily basis in the summertime, the July and August. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me one time, uh, we timed it, my, my uncle and I, he would wait for me. Uh, we didn't have telephones back then, but uh, I told him I would be starting off at a certain time. Yeah. And then when I got to uh, Obima, uh Right by uh, um, where my granny used to, uh, when your, where your granny used to live, and he'd say, "Oh, that took 35 minutes." Yeah. So that was uh, five miles and 35 minutes, which is. Wow. I thought that was a very good time, at least six minutes a mile, mm -hmm. six or seven minutes. And I was only about 10 or 12 years old, well, 12 or 13, and then run back, you know, and then time myself uh, running back. I mean, I'd usually wait at least five or six hours of rest and that before I ran back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and get here before it got dark. Yeah. And then that that kind of running set me up good in the fall when I ran in uh, cross country at my, uh, my junior high or high school tournaments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember you'd always be running in the summer too and having to take those rocks with you yeah and uh for, for the added weight but also for the dogs yeah back in the, day, the, the dogs were very fierce <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to carry a stick because that kind of hampered your uh, your progress and yet had a stick so you had to carry rocks <laughs> and i was very proficient in throwing rocks because i was uh, aiming at gophers and that and uh i beamed a lot of gophers on their head and gave them a little <laughs> little headaches because of my uh, prowess at uh, throwing rocks, which also served as good when we went to K days. We always win because uh, I throw those darts at the uh, <laughs> at the balloons yeah. <laughs> and win prizes. Mm -hmm. That was uh, things that I also learned when I was a kid. Is uh, um, the various um, animals that uh, I ran into. In the, in the forest as I played as a kid, I was able to, um, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, bag a few animals because of uh, being able to throw throw those rocks at a, at a good speed and mm -hmm. knock them out and take them in as pets. <laughs> but then they didn't survive as pets. They didn't like to be domesticated. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you say one time you had you caught a crow? Yeah, I caught a crow with a rope slip. Yeah. I waited for uh, it seemed like hours and hours uh, under this tree, and then when the crow landed, I he landed right where his uh, claws were hanging onto the branch. But I was able to pull the uh, rope or the string and caught him on his uh, on his ankles. Right? If they have ankles, and anyway, uh, he was caught. So you try flying and flying away, and I'd have all of the string, having the crow like a, you know, a live kite flying <laughs> all over the field, you know, running after, having a great old time. 
Until he came to the power line, then you had to let him go. <laughs> so where where was your mom from? Um, my my mom was from the um, a community in uh, in Saskatchewan. I mean, her mom was from a community in Saskatchewan.